I'm going to tell you right from the beginning, I think the Lord is going to mess with every single one of us here today, and I mean mess with in the best sense of the word. I don't mean that he's going to mess with us just for the sake of messing with us, because I don't think God works like that. But I am really, really comfortable saying that I think the Lord wants to press us, all of us, in some uncomfortable ways today. And I start with that sort of disclaimer, because today we're going to talk about what the kingdom of God has to say about those who are safe and secure, and those who are really at risk. And I'm deeply indebted to some work that a guy named John Ortberg did over 10 years ago. And God's word through Ortberg's work shaped me immensely shaped my view on this, was really, really formative in shaping this message. And I want to start with this question. Did you ever notice from a kingdom of this world perspective how Jesus was in an awful lot of trouble almost his entire life? You ever notice that? Yet he never really acted like he was in trouble. Rather, Jesus, quite the opposite, talked and acted and lived like it was really the people who were entrenched in the kingdom of this world who were the ones who were in trouble. Now, absolutely, Jesus was indeed oppressed, and he was indeed tried, and he was indeed mocked and killed on the cross for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of all of humanity. And yet he walked around, and he lived, and he talked as if he were the one who were okay, as if he were the one who were, was safe. And it was everybody else who was opposed to his kingdom. They were the ones who were really, truly at risk. And what I think is true is that a whole lot of people are feeling a whole lot edgier about their condition these days, especially their financial condition than they did even just a few years back. The global economy, from every perspective, is really just sort of muddling along. There's all this talk in the United States about the solvency of the Social Security program. Our financial footing is really being tested. And it's a presidential campaign season, and so there's all this rhetoric about what's happening to Social Security, and it's really reached cacophonous levels Did you know, for example, that in 1950, there were 16 workers that supported every one beneficiary of Social Security? 16 to 1. In 2011, there were only 2.9 workers supporting every one Social Security beneficiary. By the year 2034, there's only going to be two workers supporting every one Social Security beneficiary. You see the trajectory. You see where this is going. As a matter of fact, in 2010 and 2011, Social Security actually paid out more in benefits and expenses than it collected in taxes. That's not very reassuring, is it? And by the year 2033, the trust funds, social security trust funds, you hear politicians talk about the social security lockbox, right? How'd you like to have a key to open up that lockbox and see what's, what's really inside of there? Wouldn't that be fun to look in there? But by the year 2033, that lockbox is going to be completely empty and exhausted. 2033, that's not very many years away. But what I want to challenge you with and what I think God wants to challenge all of us with today is on this matter that we ought to take heart, even in the midst of statistics like those, because Jesus emphatically declares again and again and again that your and my eternal security cannot ever be engineered by anything that we do, nor can our security arrive in the form of a social security check even. But rather, our security comes only, watch this, from living fully inside the kingdom of God. Our security comes only from living fully inside the kingdom of God. And there's really two ways that you can ever think about your security. The first one is the human security engineering project. And that's the viewpoint of the kingdom of this earth. The human security engineering project says that security comes when what? When you accumulate a big enough pile of stuff, a big enough stockpile, 
when you've worked hard enough, climbed high enough, when you're clever enough, that you've managed somehow to engineer your own security. And all you have to do is look around the world that we live in, right? And you see millions and millions and millions of people who are in the security engineering business. They're just getting it done, engineering, trying to engineer their own security. And a lot of them, they think they're smart enough and they think they're clever enough. They think they're lucky enough. They think they're doing quite well at engineering their own security. And then, bam, out of nowhere, something that they cannot control happens to them. And in just an instant, they discover that really all this human security engineering that they've been pursuing, it's all just been an illusion. And Jesus says that the human security engineering project, it's a mess. It's always been a mess. It always will be a mess. The other way of thinking about our security is from the kingdom of God vantage point. And that's exactly what it is that Jesus came to teach us about and model for us to show us what it is to live inside of his kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? It's the realm and the sphere in which God is fully present. It's where his will, God's will, actually determines reality. And I'm here today to tell you that the kingdom of God is the most real thing in the universe. And Jesus says that through me, through himself, that his kingdom was wide open available to anyone and everyone who ever wants to come in. Which means that any time a person crosses the line of faith in Jesus Christ, any time a person gives their heart and life to him, they're stepping into the kingdom of God. That means he's always and forever with that person, which means that no matter what happens to anyone who is in Christ, to people who are inside of his kingdom, Jesus says, if you're living in my kingdom, though very, very, very bad things might be happening to your physical existence here on the planet, the reality is that God is with you. Every single step of the way and nothing, and he means nothing, will ever be allowed to touch your soul or anything that matters eternally about you. Absolutely nothing. Which means that those who live inside the kingdom of God are perfectly safe. Perfectly safe. Even on this earth that sometimes isn't so safe because of the kingdom of God. And Jesus lived that way day in and day out. That's exactly how he lived. And so you see, there's two ways you can think about your security. The human security engineering project, I'm just going to amass a big enough pile of stuff and I'll just have it all figured out. So many people spend their lives over there. And then there's the kingdom of God way of viewing your security. For the rest of our time we have together today, I want to describe two ways of looking at our security by talking about two towns that existed in Jesus' day, two first century communities. We're going to traverse some archaeology together to do that. The first city we're going to talk about was built by a guy named Herod Antipas. Is a city called Sepphoris with two Ps. Herod Antipas, he was sent to Rome when he was 12 years old for his schooling, for his education. That meant that Herod Antipas absolutely knew Rome. Rome was built by Caesar, and Caesar knew about building, didn't he? Caesar Augustus said this, when I saw Rome, it was built of brick. When I finished with it, it was made of marble. Quite a statement. Caesar knew all about building a city that was a monument to wealth and power. And Herod Antipas, he learned from the master. So then when Herod Antipas came back to Galilee as a young man to be the ruler of that region, the region of Galilee, he had it in his heart and in his mind that he was going to build himself a fortress. He set his heart and mind to building the city of Sepphoris as a monument to himself, his wealth, his power, his security. And he was going to use this city to showcase his security, his stability. Historians in the day actually called Sepphoris the ornament of Galilee. There was nothing else like it anywhere. 
Sepphoris had streets that were paved with stone. They had elaborate sewer systems running underneath the entire city. That was way, way ahead of its time. The streets, just as in Rome, they formed a perfect grid. That grid served to demonstrate where exactly you stood on the financial status ladder. The closer you lived to the center of the grid, the more you mattered. The goal then in life in Sepphoris was to get as close to the center of the grid as you possibly could. Everybody in Sepphoris knew where everybody else stood on the financial status ladders. We, we have uh, some pictures of Sepphoris. This is the main street, the Cardo, they call it, that went in and out of the city. It's incredible. Pillars and frescoes and tiled floors. And then this is actually a picture of Herod's house that he had constructed for himself. Quite a monument to the man Herod. A man who was trying to engineer all of his own security right here on planet Earth, Sepphoris. Now contrast that city with another first century town, a place where Jesus grew up, community called Nazareth. That's exactly right. One of you said it. Nazareth is the town where Jesus grew up. And what we know is that very often people's feelings about money and possessions and their sense of security, they're deeply shaped by their family and the home that they grew up in. And thanks to archaeology, we can know some things about Nazareth. We can know things about Jesus' upbringing that helped shape him. One of them is this. What do you think the population of the community of Nazareth was in Jesus' day? The population of Nazareth in Jesus' day. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you, and I want you to hazard a guess about what the population of Nazareth was in Jesus' day. Don't be shy. Ready, set, go. Population of Nazareth. It's a short answer question. Ready for the answer? Here we go. The population of Nazareth in Jesus' day, around 200 people. Now there's some gloating going on. I was closer. I was closer. 200. Maybe a few more, but somewhere close to 200 folks lived in Nazareth. That means that essentially Nazareth was made up of a few extended families. We have some photographs of some of the ruins of Nazareth. It's a little difficult for archaeologists to work in Nazareth these days because there's like a whole another new Nazareth built right over the top of the old one. And so everything they do is sort of underneath the current city. And there you sort of see a horizon view of it. This is some sort of residence or so that's underneath the city. These stairs, uh, they hazard uh, a guess that these actually are the stairs that led to the workshop where Joseph and Jesus would have worked. Nazareth was a very small, very, very insignificant place. The whole town would fit on just about 10 acres of land. And archaeologists have been working in Nazareth for years, and they've discovered some things. For example, there's no, not a single public building in the city of Nazareth. The roads, the streets were not paved. They were dirt and dust. Sewage got dumped out onto the alleys and streets, if you could call them that. That's really gross, isn't it? No gold coins found in Nazareth. No silver coins found in Nazareth. Very, very few bronze coins unearthed in Nazareth. No metal cups, no metal bowls discovered there either. In Nazareth, people lived in houses that did not have tiled roofs. They did not have stone floors. They did not have frescoed walls. What do you see? The precise opposite of Sepphoris. People lived on dirt floors. And that's where our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, grew up. Dirt floors, walls made of fieldstone packed together with clay. 
Many, many homes would have actually been built just simply into caves. Caves that were used in part for storage and in part for living. So it's like people would have been living in rented storage units of sorts. Nazareth is a village of peasants. And that's the community where Jesus Christ grew up. Not even much food, really. Bread would have been a staple, some olives, occasional vegetables or fish. Get this, they would have very likely had just one set of clothing each. One set of clothing each. Skeletal remains found around Nazareth regularly show serious deficiencies of protein and iron. That means that a case of the flu or a bad cold or an infected tooth could be fatal. Often they were. Half of the population died in childbirth. Of those who did survive, average life expectancy was only into the 30s. Which means that if you're 15 years old, you were a middle-aged person if you'd grown up in Nazareth. Remarkable. Just another indication of the poverty of Jesus' family. After childbirth in the Old Testament of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, instructions, specific instructions were given for everything that the mom was supposed to do. Leviticus 12.6. When the time of purification is completed for either a son or a daughter, the woman must bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a purification offering. She must bring her offerings to the priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. So you see, after one gave birth, after the ritual purification time frame, mom would bring a lamb, especially for her firstborn, and that would have been like a huge deal. Huge deal. It would have been a lot like these days when parents scrimp and save for what? Their daughter's wedding. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. All parents want so badly to provide the kind of wedding that our daughters have dreamed of for all of their lives, right? Those are dreams, by the way, that are fueled by those $20 wedding magazines that all brides are really, really good at collecting where everything is fairy tale and picture perfect and cost $25,000. What we know is that parents will sacrifice tremendously for their daughter's wedding, right? And the inability in Jesus' day to be able to provide even a lamb to commemorate the birth of your first child, that would have been indicative of extreme poverty. Look with me at Luke 2, 24. So they, and I'll tell you who they is in just a moment, they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what you see, Luke is telling us that Mary and Joseph, they could not even afford a single lamb to sacrifice on the occasion of the birth of their son, a son who incidentally they knew was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They were that impoverished. Which means that Jesus and his father Joseph and Jesus' whole family cannot ever be seen in contemporary American terms. These were not small business owners with dreams of upward mobility and financial security. Nobody in Nazareth was climbing any ladders except the ones they worked from. The very best that they could ever hope for was to avoid dying or falling into debt. They just paid their taxes and survived. Paid their taxes and survived. That's Nazareth. And Nazareth very, very much shaped Jesus. He spent 90% of his life there. After all. And Jesus' financial life didn't change much. He said of himself in Matthew 8 20, Foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has no place even to lay 
his head. What's that called in our day? Homelessness. That's exactly right. Jesus was homeless. So when he's born, his parents couldn't even afford a single lamb to offer as a sacrifice to mark his entry into the world. When he died, what we also know is that he didn't own a single plot of ground in which they could bury his body, and that's Jesus. That's his life. And so there's these two towns, Sepphoris, a monument to human-engineered security, and Nazareth, a town of desperation and poverty. Just one more thing I want to show you about these two cities. There's this map of the two cities, and you can see it up there. They aren't very far apart at all, are they? That's about three or four miles apart. That's about an hour's walk or so at a brisk pace, which means that that distance, Jesus would have been able to stand on a ridge in first century Nazareth, and he would have been able to look up and see Sepphoris on that hill that rises about 400 feet off of the valley floor. Josephus, he was a historian and a contemporary of Jesus. He's the one who called Sepphoris the ornament of Galilee. But do you know what they called Sepphoris in Nazareth? This will be familiar to some of you. They called it the city of on the hill that cannot be hidden. It was a show place, after all. And it was a tribute to skill and security engineering by a very wealthy guy. And the centerpiece of that show place of Sepphoris was very likely this amphitheater right there. That's the Sepphoris amphitheater. And everything about the Sepphoris amphitheater was designed to emphasize the gap between the haves and the have-nots. If you were rich when you went into the amphitheater, you came in through the wealthy person entrance. You had privileged seating apart from the unwashed masses. Your seat was near to the front. Your seat likely had a backrest on it. Your name may have even been chiseled into your seat. Some of you have your names chiseled into your seat here in the Journey Auditorium, right? People over in the general admission section, they could watch you and see what you were doing, but they were never allowed to traverse through your section. It's sort of the modern-day equivalent of the airlines, right? There's first class, and then there's the rest of us. And everyone in the back is eating peanuts and pretzels and drinking from plastic cups while everyone up front is eating multi-course meals served on china and finery crystal glasses. And so it's just a reminder of who's on top and who's on the bottom in the kingdom of this earth. Herod's amphitheater worked just the same way. Now, there's this really interesting thing about Jesus and this amphitheater. We're told that Herod Antipas hired workmen or craftsmen. The Greek word there is this word tekton, tecton from all throughout the area to construct that amphitheater because Herod Antipas wasn't going to get his hands dirty. He was going to pay to have it built. There weren't enough workers in Sepphoris, so he hired the job done. Look at Mark 6, 3 with me. He's just a carpenter. This is about Jesus, who one day he was teaching in the temple. The community members who were gathered at the temple were getting mad. They didn't like what Jesus was saying, and so they were mocking him. He's just a carpenter, they said. Jesus was indeed a carpenter, but any guesses about what the Greek word for carpenter is in Mark 6, 3? Tecton. Tecton. Now, when we think about carpenters, we most often think of someone who works just with what? Wood. That's exactly right. But this word tecton referred to all stonemasons, all craftsmen in general, which means that there's a very good chance that when Jesus Christ was a boy, growing up in the city of Nazareth, that he and his father Joseph would have made that three to four mile walk from Nazareth to Sepphoris to work on building that amphitheater that Herod hired the tecton from all around the region to build for him. Which means that Jesus knew something about the gap that exists between the rich and the poor. 
He grew up a peasant boy, just a heel away from luxury and wealth, and he would have frequently set his eyes on the city, on the hill that cannot be hidden, and he'd see all that wealth and all that power, and then he'd go back to his house in Nazareth, and he'd fall asleep on a dirt floor. And amazingly, when Jesus grew up, he didn't hate rich people, did he? Many of his contemporaries did. He didn't hate them, but he didn't exactly envy them either. And he never actually aspired to be one of them because Jesus knew two things. He knew there were two things that would hinder life in God's kingdom. The first one is the pursuit of the approval of others. If you're pursuing the approval of others more than you're pursuing the approval of God, you will never ever be able to fully engage, fully live in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus also knew that the pursuit of the human security engineering project by means of material wealth was death to living in the kingdom of God. He knew you couldn't do it. And Jesus has a plan for all of us. Jesus never leaves us in a lurch wondering what we're supposed to do next, trying to figure out what we're supposed to do next. See, church, Jesus fully intends that once we've crossed the line of faith, once we've put all of our faith and trust in him, that we're gonna actually set about to living differently. That rather than putting our security in a check that we hope to receive from the government at the end of our working days, rather than climbing ladders of economic standing, Jesus fully intends for us to be all in with him, with his kingdom, with his program, with his mission. Rather than trusting in stock markets and 401ks and IRAs as the means to our security, God intends that we would actually live like Jesus lived, secure, entirely secure, knowing that because of everything Jesus did for us on the cross, that our soul is cared for, that no harm would ever befall the eternal part of we who trust Christ. Now, does that mean we're supposed to be homeless, penniless, and impoverished? No, not at all. God gave us a brain, and we actually glorify him when we use our brains, doing things like saving wisely, stewarding our stuff effectively for God, for his kingdom. But as we save and steward and plan, we can never, church, be distracted from Jesus' intent for his kingdom for us, which is this. You are the light of the world. That's you, church. Jesus is talking to us, to people who have supposedly thrown themselves wide open to life inside the kingdom of God. And Jesus' plan is that this dark place, that the kingdom of this world would every day be increasingly flooded with the light of his kingdom through us. We're not the light. We just radiate Christ's light. And then you look at the rest of Matthew five fourteen. You're the light of the world. Like what? Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And so you see Jesus, the peasant boy, who grew up in extreme poverty, all the while staring up at this giant fortress of wealth and power, he says, you, church, are to be like the city on the hilltop, glowing in the night for everyone to see. Jesus' plan is that we, the church, we're supposed to build another kind of city, if you will. A city where the last are first and the first are last. And the city on the hill that Jesus refers to, it isn't Sepphoris anymore. Instead, it's a city founded by a little peasant boy from Nazareth. And it's a city where things get all entirely mixed up. Just read Jesus' Beatitudes sometime. And in the city that Jesus intends for us to be, watch this, people from Sepphoris start caring for people from Nazareth. Folks who have much generously give some of their much 
to those who have little. Jesus fully intends every day that we're to radiate God and his kingdom all over this very dark planet, which translates to this. Have you ever thought that if Jesus Christ were actually president of the United States, if he were responsible for running social security, that he just might disband it altogether? It's not difficult to imagine that under a President Jesus administration that things would work like this. People who have much give some to people who have need. It'd be real simple, wouldn't it? Things like national social security programs and the like, they all got started because we, the church, we missed the boat on God's plan for his kingdom and for his economy. That left the government and so to figure out what in the world to do about the crisis because this national worldwide pursuit to secure ourselves by means of material wealth, trying to build another Sepphoris, snuffed out God's plan for his church to be the city on the hill, glowing in the night for all to see. And Jesus goes to great lengths to caution us. Matthew 6, 19, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal Don't waste your life, Jesus says, trying to build another Sepphoris. It doesn't matter how strong or clever or smart you think you are. Just don't do it. Don't waste your life accumulating stuff because why? It's all going away. It's not eternal. Some of it's going to be eaten by moths. Some of it's going to be consumed by rust. Some stuff is going to get stolen. Instead, Jesus finishes with this. Store your treasures in heaven. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy And thieves do not break in and steal. Don't treasure earthly treasures. Don't treasure the things the kingdom of this world treasures. Treasure instead the kingdom of God. And Jesus says it's available right here, right now, and you can live like it. You can store up kingdom of God treasure right here, right now. You can treasure hungry children being fed today. You can treasure the gospel of God's kingdom being spread through your life and through your church today. You can treasure being freed from discontent and anxiety today. You can actually treasure being freed from the prison of Sepphoris and treasure bestowing good things on the needs of Nazareth. You can treasure your security in whom? In the God of the universe who always and forever keeps his promises because that's who he is and that's what he does. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would please and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I just invite you to press in with the Lord on what he's stirring up in your heart right now. Jesus, I pray for us that you would put a holy discontent inside of every last one of us for the human security engineering project that the kingdom of this world advocates and pursues. That we would become day by day by day increasingly dissatisfied by all of that chasing and all of that accumulation And God, that you would give us a sincere hunger and thirst for your kingdom, for your righteousness, for your mission, 
for the purposes that you put us on the planet for, which is to be little kingdom of God bringers everywhere we go, everything we do. Displaying the gospel, declaring the gospel. Displaying the gospel, declaring the gospel. God, may we hunger and thirst for you first and foremost. And may, God, we never be satisfied until we have everything that you have for us. We're pursuing you, Jesus, with every part of our lives, every part of our souls, every part of our hearts. We love you, Jesus.